You are listening to the Forcecom Frontline, bringing you to our soldiers on the front lines of readiness. Welcome back to the Forcecom Frontline. I'm Ashley. And I'm Eve. And today we are celebrating Women's History Month and highlighting just a few of the females currently serving and working for our Army. So, Eve, did you know that it was actually a woman who invented Kevlar? Really? I find it hard to believe given how heavy the helmets are. (laughs) Stephanie Qualick was an American chemist who invented Kevlar, the material used in most bulletproof vest and body armor. It was in 1995 she became the fourth ever woman to be inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. And Kevlar isn't just for bulletproof armor. It's often used to make tennis rackets, boats, planes, skis, ropes, cables, and tires. Kevlar tennis racket? Really? (laughs) I I mean, I think that's pretty awesome. I would have never guessed that it was a woman who created Kevlar. And I I don't know why. But it just, I guess, never occurred to me. Yeah, I wonder if Serena Williams would, like, have a Kevlar tennis racket and wear, like, a Kevlar bodysuit. No? Okay. (laughs) You might be going too far with that. Fine. (laughs) Reel me back in. Well, one of my favorite people that I love to talk about during Women's History Month is Clara Barton. I used to um, work at Fort Bragg Garrison, so I worked a lot with the American Red Cross, and their mission is just so important to me and it's something that I feel very strongly about and Claire Barton she actually got involved with tending the needy during the Civil War she treated injured Union soldiers on the battlefield and later she went on to found and became the first president of the American Red Cross well did you know that more than 400 women disguised themselves as men and fought in the Union and Confederate armies during the Civil War did you know I don't have anything clever now I win. Fine, you win today. Well, I am really excited about this month's podcast. Our guests are some amazing women. Absolutely. Uh, I'm really excited to share their stories and for others to hear their insights uh, and to teach a little bit more about them, really. Yeah, and we have somebody from our own building here at Forcecom headquarters who actually was instrumental. Not only did she start the security force assistance brigades, like play a role in that, but she also helped get women into combat arms positions in the infantry and armor. Which is awesome. And speaking of like firsts, women doing first things, I, this is, it's just so relevant right now. We have our first female vice president. We have our first female undersecretary of defense. Uh, so women are doing big things. And here we are, two females hosting a podcast. We are. We're doing big things, Eve. Well, let's get started with our first guest, let's shall we? Let's do it. It is our goal through this podcast to introduce you to soldiers in order to share their stories and what they are doing to contribute to the readiness of our Army. Our next guest is an intelligence officer who said her inquisitive nature led her to pursue an education and career heavy in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Captain Brianna Keeling joined the U.S. Army Reserve in 2010. She finished her education and was commissioned as an active duty officer in 2015. She's currently serving with the 20th Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear, and Explosives Command. I think that might be the first time I've said that as not an acronym. 
But even before joining the Army, Captain Keeling served as a victim advocate for a rape recovery center. She was a missionary, and she also worked in the financial sector as a mathematical engineer. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. First, what is a mathematical engineer? Um, so a mathematical engineer, in my case, was somebody who took financial equations and used uh, maximization theory to optimize the financial choices for users in, in the form of software packages. It, it sounds super cool, but basically it means I'm really good at Excel. Oh, well, that's interesting. So my second question, I know you've said before that working at the Rape Recovery Center was emotionally draining, but I have to also assume it was probably rewarding as well to be able to help victims who have gone through some of the worst moments of their lives. Can you talk about that a little? Um, sure. So uh, we are an emotive race, and when we see people suffering, we, we to some extent feel what they're feeling. And the, the sympathy has helped us survive as a race. And as you sit with someone in these situations and hear them recount what happened to them, it, it takes a toll. And it's hard to see the effects of such a disastrous and heinous act or to hear about them over and over again and the seeming nonchalance with which um, some disregard this experience that these people have had. And there were times when I just didn't feel like I had any more to give. Um, but then it, it was really inspiring to see the courage and the drive of these men and women in the face of their trials. It was also phenomenal to see the community and families rally around their brothers and sisters to empower them in these hard times. So yes, uh, being able to be there for people in sometimes their greatest moment of need and provide support for them as they took control of their situation was one of the most rewarding opportunities in my life and I, I wouldn't change it for anything. Now, having done everything that you did before entering the military, um, the fact that you did enter the military is pretty amazing. So, and you've mentioned before that your grandfather served in the army in World War II, and that was kind of like the catalyst in your desire to serve. Why was that? So, uh, so every year my family would take vacations and drive down to Colorado where my grandpa had a small little cabin and he wouldn't often talk about his experiences in World War II, but I remember how, yeah, and I can't remember if it was the cousins or the aunts who told me, but they would tell these stories about how he was an infantry officer in World War II and he made his way across Africa and up through Italy. And he would tell us about his amazing supply sergeant who could work wonders and get them anything he needed. And he told us about his company motto that if anybody in their company was in a fight, then the whole company was in a fight. And he wasn't a commander who insisted on being in the front lines because he knew if he got pinned down, he wouldn't be of use to his company. But, you know, some of these things looking back, I'm like, oh, well, that's what he was talking about because now I have all this military training. Um, but at one point, I, and this is a story that I just always go to when I think about his experience, he and his company, as an infantry company, came upon this company of tanks and they hadn't seen them. And so they went one by one through these tanks, like opened the hatch, dropped grenades and then like held the hatch down and they were able to destroy this entire company of tanks. Um, and so what I took from all this, um, even before joining the military, was that to be a successful officer you need to be smart and just a little bit devious with respect to fighting the enemy. And so as I found myself somewhat emotionally burnt out from my work with the Rape Recovery Center, I thought to myself, you know, what else have I always wanted to do? And I was like, oh, I've always wanted to be an army officer like Grandpa. So. I joined the Army with the goal of becoming an officer and using the smarts that I have to make a difference. And so after a lot of training and hard work, 
I'm like, here I am. I was so, yeah. That's kind of what inspired me. I could go on an entire tangent about you saying being a little bit devious, but I promise I won't. <laughs> it sounds good. Um, so now you're at the 20th Suburney, and you've recently returned from a year-long deployment to Qatar and Afghanistan, and there you are working in a combined joint intelligence operations center and a combined air and space operations center. That's a lot. Um, it sounds super impressive, and I feel like I couldn't even walk into either of those buildings. But um, can you kind of talk about how your role as an intelligence officer helps contribute to readiness and how it fits into the 20th Suburney's mission? Oh, absolutely. Um, so as far as uh, an intelligence officer role and how it contributes to readiness, uh, we get paid to think, which is great because I love to think. Um, specifically, what we do is we put ourselves in the enemy's shoes and we figure out what they're doing now so that we can assess what they're going to do in the future. And if we're successful, then we can give our commanders a leg up so that they know what, what's going to happen when they face the enemy and they can counteract what's going to, what's going to happen and decisively defeat them. So the, the intel officer's job is readiness, specifically in preparing us to meet whatever enemy we're going to be facing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we do. So I read recently that in 2019, women accounted for only 27% of the STEM workforce. So what led you to STEM? So I like to ask a lot of questions, and I like to understand the why of things. In math, physics, biology, and the hard sciences, they give us an understanding of the world around us. And we study what is happening in the now so that we can kind of predict the future, so it's not that different from MI. Um, the additional fun factor about MI is you throw in that human element, element and then understanding what motivates people and the decisions um, they actually make. So what led me into this field was a desire to understand the world around me. And so being that there is such a small amount of women in STEM, what would your message be to young girls who, who might have an interest in math or technology or science? I would say follow your interests, just do it. Um, in solving math and physics problems, the, the method is, is very simple. The first thing you do is you make a list of everything that you know, and then you make a list of everything you don't know. And the work is finding the path between the two. So learning science will not only give you a framework of how to understand the world, but it will help you how to figure out any problem you face in life. Um, that being said, it is hard work. So just I would advise them to keep telling themselves that they can do it because there'll be a lot of people who who just expect that they can't and just to tell themselves they can't because they can't. Now, you come from a really large family. And I think I read eight kids. Well, you're one of eight children. Yeah. Um, How has that helped you in your career? Has it influenced you at all? Absolutely. Um, so when you're one of so many, there are definitely times when you don't agree with your siblings and when you get into fights. Um, but family is forever, and the ability to talk through the disagreements and recognize at the end of the day that no matter what happens, you're still part of a family, for me, has distinct parallels in the military. Uh, we work long hours and we don't always agree with one another, but at the end of the day, we're, we're part of that same military family. So we set aside these areas of contention and we work towards a common goal. Um, and the, the, causes, the causes that are dear to us, that tie us together, are greater than the ones that self-interest would break us apart, if that makes sense. So I, I found many parallels. Such a great message. Um, so 
it's Women's History Month, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. And I just want to ask you, why do you think it's so important to recognize the contributions of women who came before us? Um, well, for, for me, when I when I think about things um, as a society, I feel that we are the sum of our memories. And so our identity and the whys of what we do now and in the future are molded by our understanding of the past. So if we don't remember or recognize the contributions of those who came before us and paved the way to create the world that we live in, um, not only are we ungrateful and likely to take for granted the progress we have made, but we're, we would also be prone to put ourselves in positions where the progress stops or we regress. And this may sound trite, um, but I truly believe that we need to recognize the contributions of women who come before us to inspire us to do and be better in the now and continue their legacy and create a better one for the future. Absolutely. And do you have a woman or do you have somebody that you've looked up to, a woman in your past who has helped you or mentored you? Yes, Colonel April Scope. She was my first battalion commander and she was amazing. Like the way she navigated um, understanding people and the processes and um, I just remember looking up to her and being like, this is this is how I want to be in the future. This is how I want to lead. Um, and she was just an amazing mentor and, and guide for me, especially as like of my first duty station. I was like, yes, I, I, I know what I can do and how I can be and, um, and how to be successful because she's she did it and I can do it too. Absolutely. So before we go, I'm going to throw this curveball at you. I'm looking at your picture and I see your three pups. So can you talk about your puppies? I love dogs. Oh, absolutely. Um, so after I got back from this deployment, um, I guess I should start over. Uh, so before the deployment, about six or eight months before that, I had a dog named Izzy who, who passed away. And I, I wasn't ready for, for a new dog. And I was deploying, so it wasn't uh, a thing. But so when I got back, um, I was looking for, I was really excited because I was like, oh, I'm ready emotionally, I'm, I'm there, I'm ready to get another dog. And so the first dog I got was Wyatt, he's the one on the far right, and um, he actually has a really interesting story. We don't quite know all of it, but he was, um, at some point in his life, somebody shot him, so he has a hole in the top of his mouth, and he, the bullet is still like about half a centimeter beneath his brain. Oh my um, goodness. But... <laughs> So, yeah. so we've tried several surgeries to try to fix this hole in his mouth, but it just hasn't taken. He's a very happy puppy. So he doesn't even realize it anymore. Like he's just living his, his good life. And I, I realized that he's very energetic and he needed a play buddy. So then I got Sally, who's the girl on the far left. And she's about uh, six to eight years old, but she's kind of more sedate. Um, and so they would play, but he still had a ton of energy. So I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe one more. Um, and so then I got Eli. Um, and I kind of went with the Western theme of names. Um, and so Eli and Wyatt are about the same age and they, they play really well. In fact, um, fun fact about Wyatt's name when I was picking his name, Wyatt actually means little warrior. And I thought he deserved a name that meant something since he had been through so much. But they are my, my little pack of dogs and I always kind of laugh to myself because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a ginger so I'm white with, you know, freckles. And these dogs are also white with like brown spots. So I feel, I feel like it was meant to be. That's amazing. <laughs> what kind of dogs are they? Uh, so they're hound mixes. So Wyatt's a hound retriever mix. Sally's a hound beagle mix. And then Eli, we don't quite know. He's a hound coon hound mix. Maybe we, we were a little unsure there. 
Um, and I'm using the royal we because it's like me and my bed. So. I love that they all match. Yeah. <laughs> I have a coon hound and his name is Cooper. So I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're so cute. Um, they do this really cute thing whenever they hear a, like a fire truck, they all start howling. And it's just so adorable. That it's like 45 <laughs> seconds, but it's the cutest thing in the world. Well, Captain Keeling, we know you have to get to class, so we just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. It was a pleasure to talk with you both. Our next guest is Susan Foster, the Chief of the Operations Support Branch for the Forcecom G1. She's the G1 resident expert in all matters pertaining to Army strategic readiness and manning throughout the operational force. Susan was instrumental in assigning the first women to combat arms positions when the Department of Defense opened all military jobs to women in 2015. Susan, we're so glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me. Well, first, we'd really like to hear a little bit about you. What's your background? Uh, so I am retired from active duty, uh, spent 24 years uh, on active duty, retired uh, out of a small command in El Paso Joint Task Force North. I uh, came back to Fayetteville, started working for 18th Airborne Corps as a civilian doing uh, strength management for them, uh, personal strength management, and then moved to Forcecom in 2013. Uh, came over just to be a planner. Uh, and then as things happen in uh, governmental jobs, you pick up new projects. So I picked up this project. And then here we are today. Well, speaking of today, there are a number of women serving in the infantry and armor positions. That hasn't always been the case. What was your role in making this happen? Uh, so in 2016, um, the person who had done the initial shepherding of the program, um, Colonel Christine Rice, was leaving Forcecom, and I inherited the project from her. Uh, so right about that same time is when the Army issued the uh, execution order that said, Army, go forward and uh, integrate, and here's how you're going to do it on the initial plan. Tell us the rest of the plan. And so... March of 2016, I took the program and developed plans and um, worked with commanders to begin the process. I remember hearing about the leader's first effort um, with the goal of having female leaders in place at the combat arms units ahead of junior enlisted women joining the ranks. Could you tell us a little bit about the thought process behind that and how it ended up working out? Sure. So um, in the execution order in 2016, uh, Chief of Staff of the Army directed that we would apply a Leaders First policy. So at that time, Leaders First was um, an assignment requirement that dictated that we would assign two female leaders, a leader being defined as an E5 or above, to the company or troop where we were going to insert skill level 10 uh, or junior uh, infantry or armor soldiers as they came out of the training base. So um, in 2016, when that requirement went out, we didn't have any leaders. Um, the first group of female officers started Bolick in June of 2016. 
at that time, we were doing delayed entry of sessions for female soldiers to begin in February 2017. So the intent was to build a small leader population because the officer education takes longer uh, than the junior enlisted soldier education process. And so build some leaders that we could move out to units to serve as a starting point. Um, when the chief developed the program, he said it was going to be a time-phased execution. We were going to do it deliberately, methodical, and we were going to ensure that readiness remained the number one requirement. So the intent was never to just create, I'll use an old word that uh, when they created NCOs, they called them shake and bakes. So they just brought in folks and said, yes, now you're going to be a non-commissioned officer in this field, go out and lead soldiers. There was no desire to do that. So we built from the ground up a cadre of leaders and then began to distribute soldiers behind those leaders going into the organization with the thought process that leaders, um, by virtue of them being several years older than a brand new junior enlisted soldier coming out of high school who joins the army, um, would be able to establish culture uh, norms, uh, to begin to change thought processes, to ensure that um, folks understood that this was, uh, this was being do done deliberately, as opposed to just, hey, you're going to be infantry or you're going to be armor. No, it was a very deliberate process. That makes perfect sense. Now, even today, and I know that you've probably seen some of the conversations back and forth too with the ACFT, there's always the conversation about men are stronger than women. And so the argument that in these types of fields like infantry or armor, that women need to be as physically able as men. Whenever you guys were going through the process for this, did any of the standards change to accommodate women joining combat arms? So no, the standards didn't change. Uh, what the Army did was, in the development of a strategy, because that's what military planning does, uh, we developed a strategy that looked at what did we need to do to accomplish this with maintaining readiness as the number one priority. Uh, how are we going to do that? So uh, there was a thought that we needed to look at sessions because we wanted to make sure that we were assessing the right soldiers into the right jobs. But at the same time, there was a lot of discussion about talent management, not just of female soldiers, but of, of male soldiers as well. So were we getting enough out of talent management? Were we putting soldiers in the right jobs? So there's kind of a catchphrase on the um, integration of female soldiers into previously closed fields, which is the right soldier in the right job. That's not just female soldiers, that's male soldiers, because, you know, you can have a male soldier who is not the same physical capability as other male soldiers. Uh, so what we did as an army was we developed uh, an entrance test, so a physical entrance test. Previously, we did ASVAB, right? So ASVAB is your cognitive testing to determine what MOS someone is best suited for. Well, we realized we needed to do a physical test to see what MOS a soldier had the best 
or a uh, candidate coming into the Army had the best potential to succeed in. So um, a lot of studies done uh, looking at the physical demands of each MOS, each job in the Army has a level of physicality required to do that job. So those were binned, right? So they were put into categories that allowed you to, to say that if you scored when you were going through initial entry testing in this category, this set of MOSs best suited you for your physical statue, for your cognitive abilities. So looking at the total soldier as opposed to just one element. So, but that's male and female, right? That's not, you know, uh, the thought process, it came in as part of looking at integrating female soldiers, but it's got a much larger application. I mean, it's talent management of both genders um, because just like you don't want a female soldier that is not best suited for a certain job. You don't want a male soldier either way, either way, because what happens is we injure them. Uh, we injure them as part of initial training or over time, if that was not the best fit for them. So, I mean, it, it is talent management. It sounds like it's actually bettered the army overall just by doing this. So, you know, I don't know because I only see one portion of it. Uh, the testing that I'm talking about is the occupational physical assessment test, which is given in entrance training. I only see um, small bits of information on that, but that became the forerunner to the ACFT because the thought process behind uh it is the same. It's looking at the functional fitness requirements of jobs. What does it take to be um, an infantryman or a, an armor soldier or a field artillery soldier or a um, AG soldier? Uh, when when I, I do training with the brigade and battalion command teams, and we talk about this as part of the the things that have gone on to um, in the integration process in the last couple of years. And they're always surprised to hear when I tell them that, for example, in the categories of uh, physical requirements, air defense, which is you know typically seen as a higher stressor job in the army, is a moderate physical category. But adjutant general, which is uh, what folks call personnel, is a significant physical category. So one higher category, one lower than infantry or armor, but they're in the middle because the categories are taken from all of the jobs that go in to feed that branch. So postal, soldiers who do postal operations, have to carry mail. That is very physical. So that ra raises all of the requirements for ad adjutant general to a higher level of physical requirement solely because of one job skill within the group of jobs that make up adjutant general. That's so interesting. So 
women still make up a small percentage of the Army's infantry and tankers. And, I mean, really, women still make up a small percentage of the the Army or the military as a whole. I was just looking at a report, the 2020 Annual Report for the Defense Department Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. And women made up only 15.5% of the regular Army, which was kind of shocking to me. Uh, But what would you say to encourage more women to take on jobs in these fields? I think the women that want these jobs are trailblazers, right? They are folks who, to be able to do these jobs, you have to be uh, confident. uh, You have to be, uh, have some desire to do beyond the ordinary. Um, Because I would say the thought of uh, running infantry sticks lanes at uh, the JRTC or NTC would definitely be beyond the ordinary. So I think that uh, folks that are looking for these jobs, there's ample opportunity for success. You know, they, um, folks will succeed if they are placed in the right jobs so that they have the capability, both cognitive and physical, to do the job and they want to do the job. So I think that if I were caught, if I were uh, encouraging young women, it's a whole nother piece of the army that appeals to a certain set of folks. I love what you said that these women are trailblazers. That's, I agree completely. Um, But I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Susan. This was a great conversation, and we really appreciate your time. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. So speaking of opportunities and women embracing those opportunities, today we are talking with Major Francesca Graham, who is a West Point graduate, and she also holds three master's degree. She has literally seized every opportunity provided to her. She has served in the Army for nearly 25 years and is passionate about what she does and about her service to the nation. So without further ado, let's welcome Major Graham. Good morning, Major Graham. Good morning. So you're currently stationed at Fort Bragg and you work over at the 18th Airborne Corps. Can you talk a little bit about what you do? Yeah, certainly. So I am the, uh, I'm in the uh, G5 plan shop with the uh, 18th Airborne Corps and I'm currently working as the uh, chief of plans. Which really what that means is um, uh, taking all the different plans that either already exist on the books from all the different combatant commands or the joint staff, as well as the, uh, the different planning efforts that the, uh, our, our commanding general, Lieutenant General Carrilla, uh, would like us to um, address. And kind of syncing those all together and making sure the planning efforts are moving forward as they need to. We have the resources and everything that we need to to make those happen. So you're an officer now, but you didn't start as an officer, did you? You enlisted at 17 years old, and was this right out of high school? Sort of. So I was actually, uh, my my brothers and I, we were all actually homeschooled uh, up until the age of 16. And then we, uh, I went to a local community college and earned an associate's degree in uh, criminal justice between 16 to 18. And so I don't actually have a uh, high school diploma. I have a GED because I needed a GED to get into West Point. I couldn't have a, an associate's degree to get into West Point, which is kind of funny. So sort of out of high school. I was of the high school age, we'll say, but not out of high school per se. And so was West Point always something that you wanted to do? How did that happen? No, absolutely not, actually. I, uh, I was adamantly opposed to going to West Point. 
Um, I, uh, uh, I really enjoyed, so I listed in the reserves at 17. I was doing the uh, split op version. Um, I was going to finish up the little bit of school that I had. And then my, my aspiration at, you know, young 17 years old was, uh, to, uh, after I went to basic training was to, uh, be a drill sergeant. I thought that just sounded so darn cool. And I really wanted to do that. And, um, but my parents, my mother and my father, but especially my father, he, he really wanted me to go to West Point. One of my older brothers was at West Point at the time. And I really did not want to go. And, and as time went on, and we had quite a few altercations about that, as one would say. <laughs> as time went on, I, I, uh, and I was at West Point, and then I eventually graduated, which I'm very um, uh, honored to have done so. Uh, I realized that the reason I did not want to go to West Point was because I was absolutely convinced that I was going to fail. Uh, because my brother was at school at the time, he's he's off the charts intelligent. I mean, just unbelievably intelligent, and he was kind of struggling. But I realized later that the reason he was his grades weren't as great as I thought they should have been was because he's one of those incredibly intelligent, lazy people. At least at the time, he was not anymore. But so he knew he could pass and without working as hard. Um, and he admits that it's it's kind of a running joke in the family. Um, oh, I wish but, I could do uh, that. Oh, I know. Wouldn't that be great? But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, my father, mother, my father, especially very insistent. My mother was, uh, was and is remains, uh, an angel and, and really helped me, uh, get through and with the application process. And then I was very fortunate, um, that my battalion commander in the reserves gave me a commendation to go to West Point, uh, through the West Point preparatory school. Uh, and that's how I went to, that's how I ended up going to West Point. And, and, you know, it's kind of one of those things in, in life, if you're given an opportunity like that and other people were competing for it and you were you were given the, the golden ticket, uh, at least my attitude when I got there was, well, I'm certainly not going to throw away this golden ticket when other people wanted it so badly. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I was very, had a great group of, great group of friends, great professors. Um, uh, it's just a really, really phenomenal opportunity and I'm very lucky and very honored to to have been there and to gradu- graduate. I'm very grateful to my parents for uh, pushing me to go there. I was actually stationed there as a soldier, and oh my gosh, I loved it, and I kind of wish that my path had been altered a little bit and I'd gone there. But um, it's, it's beautiful. Oh yeah, it's the most gorgeous campus. Um, I was born there. Really? I I was. Oh wow! wow. Yeah, no, it's 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 just. It, it, it definitely definitely is that's one of the keys to my heart, that's for sure. So you had done so much before you even went to West Point, but how do you think that your time there shaped you into the officer you are today? Oh, tremendously. It's um, so so my parents instilled in me uh, a lot of a lot of you know good things, character, love of education, um, those those types of things which you would hope that. That any any good parent, you know, kind of uh, instills in their children, and uh, and West Point just just brought those things forward, uh, and then also it it really uh, indoctrinated almost or inculcated or it really enforced this concept of of you know what the, the core stands for the duty on a country, and it you don't you know especially when you're that young. Uh, you don't always understand what is happening around you. You don't always understand 
why those things are important. You don't always, you, it's not, it, it doesn't become part of your being, but one of the great things about West Point um, is, and, and certainly the time that I was there, I don't, you know, I, I'm not there now, but is it, it's, it's just this constant um, feeling or this sense and this education towards being something and being a part of something bigger than what each individual human being is. And truly, in the sense of, of West Point, in the sense of the military, that's being a part of the military, which is a, uh, a part of uh, this country and the being of this country, uh, uh, of the United States of America. Yeah, absolutely. And so I have a couple of facts here. So West Point was founded on March 16th, 1802. And it was Thomas Jefferson who signed the document that founded the United States Military Academy. But it wasn't until Reception Day, July 7th, 1976, that the first women who would graduate from the academy were actually admitted. So 119 women arrived on Reception Day, but only 62 made it to Graduation Day in May of 1980. Um, what was your experience like? Were there a lot of females? Like, what was that? Uh so my experience, I was, you know, I've been asked many times, uh, what was my experience at West Point like as a woman? And I always, just just as a point of point of discussion, I always like to use the term woman instead of female. Uh, I know it's a very military term to say female, but a female is condensing of what is my gender. Um, but I'm I'm more than that. I'm a woman, and all the women that exist are more than that. Um, so as a woman at West Point, uh, you know, I. Obviously, there are challenges uh, being a woman at West Point, being a woman in the military, being a woman in the world. There are a lot of challenges. But for me at West Point, I, I got to tell you, I was so focused on trying to graduate <laughs> and I was so focused uh, uh, to pass physics and to pass chemistry and, and two topics, just, just two that I had honestly never tried before because I was homeschooled and that was... And that was, it wasn't because I was homeschooled, but because of the nature of, of the homeschooling that, that my parents did. Those, those weren't topics that were part of, for me, Francesca, my upbringing, my brothers, uh, specifically my brother Jerome, he really uh, tended towards that. But part of the way that we were raised was to really focus on the things that are your passions. And then the other things that you need to learn in life, you, you, you will learn in life. And it is quite true that, you know, physics, chemistry, computer science, those things are certainly not my passions, but because of this love of learning that my parents instilled in us, then those things, we can learn those things, even if we've never um, tried them before, uh, until you're at a place like West Point, which is a bit daunting, but, but you know, you can work hard and get through it. But yeah, so were there challenges at West Point as a, as a woman? Yes, but you know, if you think about it, so, so you know, we as human beings, we have a certain bias towards um, things that are beautiful. Well, everyone does. I mean, look at a peacock. A peacock has beautiful feathers and wants to show them. Uh, to, to whoever his mate is. So if if I'm a man and I'm, you know, six foot three, I have jet black hair, high cheekbones, and I look like Adonis, uh, there's a lot of things that are come going to come a lot more easily to me than if I'm a man and I'm, and I'm five foot four and I'm a little bit stout and I have balding hair. Um, Fair point. So, so you know, um, uh, and, and, and for the, the person that looks like Adonis, you know, that person has certain challenges as well, which are that that person always has to be Adonis. I mean, that's tough to always be perfect. That is really, really tough. So, 
Uh, one of the things that, that West Point did teach me, if you ask me, the impact of West Point, uh, the uh, the philosophy course that we went through, I, I didn't pay as much attention as I should have because I was really trying to graduate physics at the time, <laughs> or pass physics. But uh, I, as I've gotten older, I've really um, invested personal time into reading uh, philosophy, uh, different philosophers. And something that it's done is it's really made me um, appreciate and enjoy humanness, what it is to be human, and the challenges that every human being faces, and to really have a genuine affection for those things, acknowledging that I have challenges as a woman and in who I am writ large, and that other people have challenges too, and, and to respect those and uh, uh, be compassionate uh, uh, for those challenges that everyone faces, regardless of who they are, what they look like, gender, etc. So you started talking about passions a little bit, and we've spoken before, so I know that you're super passionate about the Army, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little, but also um, if you could say something to a woman who is just deciding to join the military or isn't sure about joining the military, what would you say to her? So I'll, I'll take the uh, the first, or excuse me, the second question first. Um, for for a woman getting ready to join the military, uh, and, and, and quite frankly, this would be the same thing that I would say to any person getting ready to join the military, a woman or a man. Uh, and I say that because, because uh, so I have nine, nine soldiers, officer and enlisted that I, that I have the honor to serve as their mentor. And of those people, only one of them is is a woman. The rest of them are men of, of, of all different branches. Even one of them is in the infantry branch of field artillery. So different. I, I, I engage with everyone because I, I like people, genu- genuinely like human beings. And uh, but for what I would say to, to, to a woman or to a man is to uh, uh, work hard so I, I like General Garrett's motto, um, uh, work hard and work out. That's what he always tells me, uh, <laughs> work hard and work out. And it seemed, and it's true, you know, work hard, work out, and uh, seek seek those opportunities that uh, will challenge you. And even if you, even if you are in a position that, you know, you don't think is cool enough, or you don't think is sexy enough, or you don't think is whatever it is, that's irrelevant, your, your duty when you are in that position or you're in that location is to be the best person that you can be, whether it's the best officer, the best enlisted, junior enlisted, NCO, whatever it is, and really, really work hard to uh, to take whatever that job is that you're doing and do your best work at it. And the, and the other thing is, is that, you know, we as, I think our culture right now um, is very, uh, it's, it's, it relies we are told too much to rely on other people for our uh, for our freedom. And I would say to any person, if they're just joining the military or if they're in the military or if they're in the civilian world, wherever it is, your, your freedom and your emancipation from anything, whether a man or a woman, does not come from anything that anybody else can give you. It comes from your own education and your self-education those things that you're passionate about it's your responsibility to educate yourself and once you find those things that you're passionate about and you educate yourself and you read and you travel and you do those things that 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 are true to yourself 
then then you will have that mental freedom and you won't rely on other people to give you um, emancipation or give you freedom because that's just relying on someone else for something like that is a, is quite frankly a, in my in my estimate a weakness because you can't take care of yourself i couldn't agree more the last question you had about uh being in the military and my passion about it. So this is something that Ms. Patoka and I discussed uh, several months ago because we were talking about uh, women in the military and some of the challenges women face in the military. Um, but for me with the military, the reason why I'm so passionate about the military, even though I've experienced certainly quite a few challenges in the military, is because when you look at, one of my passions is history, when you look at the history of military service, uh, in, in, in feudal eras and, and even up until the, the origins of our country, the only way that you were allowed, and by allow, I'm, I choose that word very deliberately, allowed to uh, serve in the military and swear an oath of fealty to the country or to the idea of the country is if you were a noble person and you owned land and you were, and you were wealthy and, and you had horses to provide and armor to provide and all this stuff. Uh, whereas for us in our country, we, especially in this current time, well, the last 200 years or so, we have every single citizen of this country uh, has the the honor to swear an oath to the to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, which is so much bigger than any person and so much bigger than any position. It is it is literally our country. This beautiful, beautiful massive, massive country that, that we have the, 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 the honor to, to live upon and to exist upon for our, for our short lives. And so when, when, you, when you have that opportunity, when you have that honor and, and you, you're part of that, that thing that is protecting this, this beautiful country, then some of the day-to-day things that happen in your life, to me, I mean, they can certainly have a very real impact on your life, and they do. Uh, but for me, this thing that I'm a part of, this this honor that I have to 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 serve the Constitution, to serve our country, is is so much bigger than those day to day things that happen in in the life of human beings. And again, that goes back to kind of that philosophy of being compassionate for and compassionate towards humanness and and the frailties of humanity. You touched upon history and the Constitution, and this month we're celebrating Women's History Month. Do you think it's important um, to continue celebrating women's history as its own separate month? And is there someone that you've ever looked up to? You know, I think it's important to continue to celebrate women's history. Yes. I get very nervous when anybody, uh, I call it self-segregating. Uh, where you 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 put yourself aside, and that's why when you ask what would I tell a woman joining the military, I would tell anybody joining the military. Um, I get very nervous about that. I understand the intent behind Women's History Month and why why it's important, why we're highlighting these things, but I don't I don't think that we are actually addressing those things that are important, which is educate yourself don't rely on other people to to, for your freedom don't rely on other people for your emancipation and and um and you know just having a poster up and all these things i mean that might 
I understand the intent that might, you know, kind of jog someone's mind. Now, let me look this. Let me look this person up and see what she did. Yes, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, and as far as a woman that I look up to, I, I can't say any specific woman. There are many, many women that I look up to. Likewise, many, many men that I look up to. I look up to anybody, any person, present or past, who dedicates their lives to their country and their family, regardless of gender. Uh, a woman that I have, a woman, if, if you want to know specifically, that I've, that I've been reading a lot from lately is uh, Virginia Woolf. Now, she's she's known as a as a feminist firebrand icon and all sorts of stuff. And, and, but if you actually read Virginia Woolf, you don't read about Virginia Woolf, you read Virginia Woolf, go back to the source document, uh, you would be amazed. This woman, she was brilliant. I mean, unbelievably talented and a prolific author and a prolific, I mean, just incredible. And, and the aspect of her that is feminist is just one, one aspect of who she was as a person. But because we, we, we rely on other people to educate us, so, so few people understand or have read Virginia Woolf. They read about Virginia Woolf. And it's such a it's such a loss to who she was as a person, and the impact she had on 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 society and authorship. You know, Jack Kerouac. He's a famous author. Wrote On the Road and a bunch of others. He's credited with this type style of writing called stream of consciousness. But if you read Miss Dalloway, which was written in the nineteen I think nineteen twenty four by Virginia Woolf, that whole book is this incredible stream of consciousness style of authorship that. She doesn't even, people don't even know that really about her because they're so busy reading about about her instead of reading her. Uh, so I would rec really recommend um, Virginia Woolf uh, to, to begin a process of self-education, not just on women, but on, on life, on things, on philosophy, on, on, on humanness. I mean, she's, golly, she's just incredible. You've made me realize that it's been a good 20 years since I've read Virginia Woolf, and I would probably read and interpret things differently at my experience level in life now than I did whenever I was younger. So thank you for that, because I think I'm going to go back and re-explore. Yep, no, I, I would recommend it. That's one of the things that I think is so great about being homeschooled is uh, my brothers and I were not subjected to the tyranny of a teacher who told us what something meant. Uh, so... So most of the most of the books that I uh, most of the things that I read I'm reading them either for the first time in my privacy of my home and privacy of my thoughts, uh, or uh, and, and 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 can there, therefore apply my own experiences and interpretation on it, which is a great great luxury that a lot of people don't uh, don't have or don't take advantage of truly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Major Graham. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I hope this was uh, fruitful. I yeah. feel it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I just want to say I'm so glad that you agreed to do this. Um, I think you've got a, a really great perspective. And I am also really excited for the fact that other people get to hear your, hear your passion, because um, I know that I had initially, and I was super impressed by that. Um, and so I'm glad that we get to help share your story a little bit. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, Ashley, I guess that sums up another podcast for us. Yeah, those were some great conversations with some amazing women from across ForceCom. Next month, we're going to have our ForceCom Command Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major Todd Sims with us. And we'll also have some special guests for Month of the Military Child. 
We just want to take a moment to thank all of you out there listening and for your support of our new podcast venture. And in the meantime, if you can't get enough, don't forget to follow Forcecom on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Forcecom on all three platforms. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next month on The Frontline.